at the end of the day, what I'm really interested in is seeing an American public that listens, <laughs> listens <laughs> to things they disagree with, read things they disagree with, and make discerning judgments. That's a long way away from where we are now. And it's hard. It's hard because there's so much information out there. But to me, that's the only real check. Hey, everyone. Jenna here. And we have come to the end of the Democracy Works summer break. Thank you all for your patience as we took some time off over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Michael and Chris are actually still on summer break this week. So I am going to share with you a conversation that I had um, earlier this summer while I was in New York City for an event. I talked with David McCraw, who is the Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times and author of a memoir called Truth in Our Times. Um, David has been the general counsel for the New York Times for more than a decade, worked at the New York Post prior to that, a longtime media attorney, longtime defender of and advocate for the free press and the First Amendment. Um, I talked with David about libel suits, Freedom of Information Act requests, and everything else that goes into being a First Amendment attorney. As I said to him before we started recording, uh, he in, in many ways has what college age me would have described as a dream job. So it was really great to get to talk with him and hear his perspective about the First Amendment and the free press and how those things relate to democracy. So we will be back with our normal format next week with me, Michael, and Chris. But in the meantime, please enjoy this conversation with David McCraw of the New York Times. David, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you for having me. So, David, on the show, we talk to a lot of academics and people whose jobs are, are pretty easy to conjure what they do day to day. Um, yours as uh, Deputy General Counsel of the New York Times, perhaps not so simple. People might have different ideas about what, what that looks like. And we're going to talk, I think, today about some of the, the specific aspects of, of what you do and how it relates to the First Amendment and democracy. But can you set the stage, just kind of give us the 30,000-foot overview of, of what your role entails at the Times? A lot of people assume that my job is reading stories before publication, and that is that is part of my job. But it's a, it's a fairly small part of my time commitment. We spend a lot of time uh, litigating against the federal government, filing FOIA suits among the mainstream media. No one has filed more FOIA suits than, than the New York Times. We're also involved in helping our reporters in news gathering. A lot of new questions there about how you can gather news in an age of computers. Can you use computer scripts? Can you use ro robots to <laughs> get that information on, on the platforms? Um, and then there's just a whole host of other questions that come up. People will threaten us with a libel suit. I need to respond. People will threaten us with a copyright suit. I'm the guy that comes to. Right. Um, so we we also talk a lot on this show about the the guardrails of democracy, and I think the the First Amendment and the the related cases that provide protections to a free press are certainly one of those guardrails. And you know, following the the 2016 election, there was some some speculation or maybe consternation about this is going to be the end of the free press as we know it, and 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 things like that. Um, so as we're coming up on three years since the, the, the 2016 election, how is that guardrail democracy holding up? I think it's still there. 
Uh, one of the main points I make in my book, though, is that we have a free press if the people want it. <laughs> that it, it really, in the end, depends on having an engaged citizenry. Donald Trump has talked about changing the libel laws. That doesn't really worry me a lot. I think that's a long process, and it's probably not going to happen. We've seen the whole reality TV show-ism of uh, this press conferences where we're going to vote people off the island. And we certainly have seen some very troubling leak investigations. All those things should concern us. But at the end of the day, I think the law is strong. And what really is important is whether people average voters are going to make use of the free press we have. Right, right. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that later. Um, but, you know, you, you talk in your book that there was actually a drop in libel suits before Trump took office. I think it was was about one a year that that, that, that you weren't We probably public? end up with two a year, okay. although not very serious cases. Right. And, and has that increased at all over the past couple of years? There was a slight uptick right after the, the Trump administration came into office, but we haven't seen that continue. Mm -hmm. And, Jen, it's important to understand we're, we're talking about really small numbers. <laughs> when you're talking about going from two to four, it's easy to say, our libel suits have doubled, when in fact, we just have two more. Yeah, and, and I think, too, there's there's a, a, a difference, it seems, between people who threaten to file lawsuits and, and, and the people who actually do. Can you talk about what that looks like? It's a really important point because when we talk about libel, it was originally intended to fix people's reputations. Somebody says something about you that's untrue, it hurts your reputation, you go to court, you get that fixed. It became clear beginning a long time ago, and we can talk about Times versus Sullivan, the famous Supreme Court case in 1964, where everyone had come to understand that libel suits were actually being used to try to suppress free, spe free speech, and that really hasn't changed much. We get a lot of threats. Not a lot of threats, but we get threats. Um, we get very few lawsuits. But those threats are really designed to use litigation, the threat of litigation, to get us to say something other than what we think should be said to the American people. Right, to, to, to have kind of a chilling effect or, you know, things like that. Yeah, because yeah, the people who write, <laughs> Central American generals who uh, have been involved in human rights violations, Chinese businessmen who have somehow got their fortunes in very mysterious ways, Russian oligarchs, they're the people who hire attorneys who lean on us before stories. It's pretty clear that we're not really talking about reputational harm. <laughs> Their reputation is well known to people in America. Sure, sure. What they're really talking about is can we get this story to say something other than what, where we think it's going. Right. Uh, yeah, and so you, you mentioned Times v. Sullivan before. Um, for folks who are not familiar with media law or, or you know, maybe haven't thought about that in a while, can you just you know, give us an overview of the, the protections that, that it provides to the press? At the end of the day, Times versus Sullivan is really a fairly simple concept, and that is a publisher has a right to make a mistake. That if a publisher gets something wrong, and actually even if that statement hurts somebody's reputation, that person, if that person is a public figure or a public official, can't win a libel suit unless the person can prove that the statement was made with actual malice. The best way to think about that is the publisher knew it was false or entertained really serious doubts about it and published it anyway. Incredible protection. Times versus Sullivan came out of that realization I was talking about earlier that libel suits were being used to silence the press. Sullivan was a Southern office holder. 
there's no question his reputation was not hurt by anything that was published in the New York Times. But what he and others wanted to do and were trying to do was use libel suits to get the northern press to stop talking about the civil rights movement. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's been time and time again of, of seeing that you know, people threaten these suits, nothing happens, but yet people still seem motivated to, to keep making the threats. I guess there's, there's as you said, there's, there's other motivations there beyond just actually whether they can win the suit or, or not. Yeah, and let, let me go high and low mm-hmm. there, high-minded. Uh, libel suits, if, if, if one's a plaintiff and <clears throat> feels that something in the newspaper has really hurt a reputation, a libel suit's a very imperfect tool to get a reputation fixed. So I understand why people threaten if they know something untrue is about to be said about them. That's the best place to make sure that one's reputation is not harmed. If you sue, it's going to be years later before anybody knows about it, and they may never hear about the suit again anyway. That's the high end. That, that gives the, the better angels their, their due. For the most part, though, I, I think it's done because many members of the press, many news organizations are in financial difficulty, and threats work. One of the reasons it's important for the New York Times to stand up and the Wall Street Journal to stand up and CNN to stand up is, is we can afford to do that. A lot of local papers can. Yeah, and I actually wanted to ask about that. You talk in the book, uh, I believe when you started your tenure at the Times, it owned several smaller papers. And, and yeah, the, the Times has people like you to, to help defend and also the, the financial resources as well. What does that picture look like at, at a mid-size or a small news organization if there's a, a suit or you know threat of a, of a suit? I'm going to paint with a broad brush here because there are a lot of local newspapers who have shown a lot of courage and stood up. But in many places, that suit that's being threatened by somebody with resources puts an existential threat on that news organization, existential to the, to this extent. Let's assume that the newspaper has insurance. Let's assume the newspaper has spent a whole lot of money on insurance and has a deductible of $150,000. $150,000 probably finances two or three, maybe four in some market reporters for a year. Are you really going to run that story, take that risk, even if you think you're going to win, when you know the cost of that is going to harm your overall news operation. That's why the threats work. And I think there's a lot of good work being done in this area, lawyers trying to find ways to get free and low-cost services to news organizations, but we've got a ways to go. Yeah, and and not not to mention even that, you know, if it creates kind of a rift in the community if your subscriber base is already pretty low, you risk kind of alienating even even more people, I would think, if it's like a, a popular community figure or, you know, something like that. I think that's right. And a lot of times people see, hear about the the suit and just assume that something's mm-hmm. gone wrong. And there's a great PR value in, in filing the suit in the first instance. And, and so I, I admire those, those news organizations that are willing to stand up, but it gets harder and harder. Mm-hmm. So where does social media fit into all this? I, I, I have written in my notes, uh, is Twitter a libel-free zone? I can't remember if that was something in your book or something that I thought of as oh, I was reading it. Yeah, but yeah this, is, this, this is the Donald Trump defense. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that, that that's, I find very curious about the president is that in the recent years, when he's been involved in libel suits, it's because he's been sued, and he's been sued for things he said on Twitter. And when he starts criticizing the libel laws, he's completely lining up on the wrong side of the ball. He should be siding with me because he needs those defenses. Um, one of the defenses he posed in, in, a, in a case that 
got a, a certain amount of, of fame or notoriety, depending on your point of view, uh, was decided by the New York courts, where his lawyers argued that, well, the statements may not have been literally true, but they were on Twitter, and no one comes to Twitter looking for the truth. Everybody understands it's just a, a place where there are opinions and exaggerations and hyperbole, and he wins. It was a great decision for the First Amendment. I don't know if he understood that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you went to journalism school. You you talk about that in, in the book. Um, did, did you work as, as a reporter at all before you be, became an attorney? I, I did. I, I started out working on the copy desk, though, at, at the uh, Quad City Times in Davenport, Iowa. And then I was doing some writing for newspapers in upstate New York at some point. Um, as I like to say, no one cried the day I left journalism. Uh, I, I am much better positioned to do journalism some good in my current seat. Yeah, sure. But I mean, I feel like that that reporter's curiosity never really goes away, though. Or, or I mean, do you find yourself having to kind of balance that with your now role as a lawyer, maybe where it's better for you to be on a need to know kind of basis? Yeah, yeah. Let, let me answer that in a couple of ways. I, I was talking to a lawyer from the CIA a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, you and I have the same job because your folks essentially act like case officers and my people work like reporters. And, and, and he's right. There, there is a whole class of, of occupations that look a lot like reporting. And the, the second way I'd answer that, though, is that I think that I have a really good ear for how to fix stories when I'm reading them beforehand. I, I understand how journalism is spoken. I understand the genre and little tweaks in the language can make a huge amount of difference. I think the point that I think you're asking about is is that sometimes I do get caught up in the love of a great story, and that's probably not the best place for a lawyer to be. It's a little bit like a banking lawyer who loves mortgages. <laughs> there are times when you should say to people, "Don't, no, no, let's not give a mortgage this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we, we move um, off of libel into to some of the other uh, parts of, of your job that you talk about, I, I, w- I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the letter that is printed on the back cover uh, of your book, kind of... Um, really brought your name more into the public than maybe you would have ever liked it to have been out there. I don't know. But um, can, can you tell us uh, about your your response to uh, Donald Trump's lawyers in, in October of, of 2016, um, how that, that came about and, and how it's kind of shaped the, the work that, that you do and, and how you've, you've approached things since then? Yeah, I, I wrote this book because I feared that my obit would be the first paragraph of my obit would refer to the having written a letter and seemed that was not really the great accomplishment I wanted in my life. But I, I appreciated the the warm welcome that it received. What had happened is is pretty well known at this point, but uh, we had published a story in which two women claimed that they had been inappropriately touched by Donald Trump many years earlier. The story happened right after the controversy over the Access Hollywood tape. Uh, Donald Trump, then a presidential candidate, had appeared at the debate on a Sunday night and defended his reputation and his conduct towards women. This story followed that. The Trump administration, excuse me, the Trump campaign was was very unhappy with it because it tended to call new attention to an issue which they think they thought they'd shut the door on at the debate. Um, and so we ran the story. The uh, lawyers for Mr. Trump then sent a letter asking us to retract or to uh, run a correction or do something to uh, walk away from the story. We declined to do that. I, I wrote a letter, uh, which which suddenly took off. They had posted their uh, 
demand to us online. I knew that we were going to post our response online. And so while I do think I followed exactly what the law uh, says uh, in these situations and summarized it accurately, it it was pointed. And it was pointed in part because I don't like to be threatened. It's pointed in part because I think people expect us to stand up. The thing people should keep in mind, I think, is that as a lawyer for news organizations, I understand we make mistakes. And most of the letters I get from people who say, you've made a mistake, I want to have a dialogue with that lawyer, find out, do we need to run a correction or not? But this becomes a little bit of political theater when it's Donald Trump or Harvey Weinstein or the National Football League. They're posting their letters online. They're attempting to shape the political debate, public debate. We need to respond in kind. Yeah, sure. And and thinking about all the other places that the letters going to appear, you know, it's going to be on on the up on the screen of every cable news outlet. It's going to be all over social media, things like that. It is, and and I was certainly aware of that because they had been threatening. That is, the Trump campaign had been threatening all, all day. The day before, we're about to sue. We're about to sue. We're about to sue. And into the night, uh, one of our PR people contacted me on Wednesday night and said, we hear that that the Trump campaign's about to file a libel suit, which struck me as odd because it's the middle of the night and we don't have a lot of courts open in New York other than the Bronx Criminal Court, and they don't do a lot of presidential candidates' libel suits there. Um, and then the letter came after midnight to us. So the next morning, it was all over cable news. It was on the radio the reporters were giving interviews on the air. Uh, we had TV trucks outside the building. It was pretty clear that the issue was not going to go away. Right. Um, so we, you mentioned briefly uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, and, and you say in your book that they should be an exercise in Democracy 101, but they're not. Can, can you explain that? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see what's happened. The, the Freedom of Information Act was signed into law in July 4th, 1966, by Lyndon Johnson. And Michael Schutzen at Columbia has a great book about uh, the rise of the right to know, which which details this and other parts of the history of that concept, the right to know. But that was the heart of it, that the public has a right to know what the government's up to, and that includes getting documents. In the final drafting of that bill, it occurred to Congress that there were certain things that had to be kept secret, and so a series of exemptions were built into the law. What we've seen in the 50-plus years since then is that those exemptions have essentially gnawed, gnawed, gnawed at the edges of the law until uh, it, it's taken much, much away from what one would expect to get when, when filing a FOIA request. The one thing I'll say in defense of FOIA is that it did create a culture of openness around some very basic documents. Nobody has to ask can I get a copy of the federal budget? Can I get a copy of my local uh, government's budget? There are certain types of records that are, are are just open, and I think without FOIA, that culture wouldn't be in place, and you would be jerked around by government bureaucrats. But to do the kind of work we're doing where we're trying to press into the inner workings of government, find out why a decision was made, who was at the table, what was the thinking, 
those get hard. Yeah, and and there was there was something too where you your reporters had been told that it would take thirty years to to compile all the all the documents that they they were they had had requested. Yeah, it, it was actually fifteen, but it doesn't oh. really matter, does it? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was it, it was fascinating that one of the first suits I did involved the Department of Labor, and the the government walked into court. We sued, and we weren't getting a response. But the government had had taken the position both in writing to us before we sued and after we sued, that it would take them 15 years to do the necessary review and release the documents. The the judge in that case noted that the statute, FOIA itself, uh, contemplates a 20 business day response. She thought maybe 15 years exceeded <laughs> what was allowed. And is this something that that changes administration to administration, or do you is there is there reason to believe that if if Donald Trump is not reelected in twenty twenty, the the FOIA landscape might look different moving forward? That's a really interesting question, and I get asked a lot. It's a little hard to tell because if you just count requests, that doesn't really reveal how complicated they are, and are you count how many were rejected. That doesn't take into account whether they should have been rejected under the law. Um, This is how I look at it. The FOIA apparatus in the government doesn't really change with administrations. It's run by civil servants who keep their jobs from one Republican administration to the Democratic administration and back. So in many ways, there's a consistency, and it's a consistency of not getting responses or not getting responses in a timely fashion. I think the Obama administration went out of its way to talk up FOIA early on. I think when they confronted the realities <laughs> of it, that they were shocked to see that we weren't happy. I think they thought that, look, we you can trust us. We're not withholding documents unless the law requires us to do so. I, I don't think the picture is that simple. So, uh, not a lot of change, and I think if there's a Democratic administration that comes into office next time around, we're going to see pretty much the same. Yeah, that's and that's just so interesting too because you think about like we we often I think paint civil servants with this very like altruistic brush, right? Like they're they're not they're doing their jobs because they care about freedom and democracy and and good government and all these things. But it seems like that's sometimes not the case, at least in this this area of of what what their responsibilities are. Yeah, and, and I always get in trouble when I talk about uh, FOIA officers, so I'm gonna I'm going to tread lightly here because. Uh, it's easy to demonize them that, you know, oh, they rejected this request. They took forever. They, they had no grounds for rejecting the request. And I, I had this epiphany at the beginning of the Obama administration when I was invited to go to a conference of FOIA officers and speak, therefore meeting a lot of people I'd written angry letters to. And it's a lot easier to write angry letters to anonymous people when you don't know what they look like. Now you're in a room with a bunch of them. And they were, as you described them, Jenna, they were conscientious. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the power to do what needs to be done. What's interesting is, is as I've gone around and talked about this with people from other countries, is a country like Mexico actually has an office that overrides agencies so that it takes it out of the political process and, and some independent agencies deciding other governments, other countries have that same sort of setup. In in FOIA, as it's as it operates in this country, it in the first instance is decided by the agency, 
And obviously the agency at some point has its own prerogatives about what it wants out and what it doesn't. Mm-hmm. The other thing you, you spend a lot of time talking about in the book is uh, how you decide whether or not to publish classified information or yeah. things that are kind of sensitive to, to national security and, and in, some time, in some cases the ways that you work with the government. Um, so what, what does that look like in the Trump era? We receive classified information all the time, our reporters do. Sometimes it's in conversations, sometimes it's documents. And for our editors, they are faced with the fairly weighty responsibility of deciding whether publication will actually cause harm. And I think that is an important part of our responsibility, that we sh- our primary responsibility is giving the public information the public needs to make decisions in a democracy. But at the same time, we have to have some concern about will people be harmed if this is published. And probably the most controversial aspect of that is that we have as a tradition or as a pattern of practice is editors will talk to, reporters will talk to the government, say we're about to publish this story and give them a chance to respond. They don't get a veto, but we want to hear what they have to say because we're working with limited information. Let's hear them make the case for why we shouldn't publish this. There are certain standards we abide by in that, and that is that we want to hear from a high up in the government. We do not want to hear from PR flax. Uh, we want them to articulate a real reason, not uh, some general reason. Our editor, Dean Beckay, in an interview talked about how one of the problems is the CIA constantly says, oh, there will be blood on your hands and people will die. And it's obvious that that's not the case for, for many of the stories. When they're honest, when they say, here's what the real risk is, I think that gives us a fair shot of, of making a good judgment. Mm-hmm. And, and has that changed at all now that, you know, there are so many politicians and others who are very active on Twitter and they're kind of their own news outlet in, in, in some respects? Has that changed at all the, the way that, that uh, reporters are, are working with these these folks? I know that you could probably only speak to a very small part of that from, from your perspective. but Yeah, so the... The real force of Twitter has been it has broken the ability of major news organizations to be gatekeepers, and some people celebrate that. <laughs> you know, we didn't need those gatekeepers anyway. We wanted an open gate. So the, whether it's the president or Chuck Schumer or anybody else, people in power no longer need to say something the New York Times decides should get to the public. They can go directly to the public. And... I think that what that has meant is that there are a lot of competing voices for our reporters. When they do a story, they understand that there's a lot of information out there that they may have to take into account, they may have to quote, and they can certainly expect that if there is blowback, that that person who feels the story is unfair or didn't like the criticism is going to be able to talk directly to the public. All in all, I think it's a positive that... Um, there's so much information out there and there's so much opportunity for people to um, have their voices heard. Ultimately, though, whether it's good or bad really depends on what the public does with it. Right. And uh, you mentioned at the, the very start of our conversation that uh, reviewing stories is, is a very small part of your job. But I'm wondering if the changes in the, the media landscape you were just describing have impacted how you look at a story, what you're looking for, things like that. Not so much the change in in the media landscape, um, uh, other than I, I realize that that we're 
going to be scrutinized very closely, which is a positive thing. We should be scrutinized. Every institution should be scrutinized. Um, but what, what I have seen and what, what, what I think has shifted is that uh, there is such criticism that's inevitable no matter whether you get it right or wrong. I think we really need to double down and make sure that we can stand up our facts. I think also it, it, it puts pressure on people, as it should, that let's try to get people on the record. I understand that confidential sources are controversial. I'm here to tell you it's necessary uh, in many stories. But I do think that having transparency into who we are and how we do stories has now become an accepted part of the landscape. We could talk all day about any any number of these topics. We're going to start to bring things to a close here. Um, you end your book talking about the, the First Amendment needing to find new life and, and new support. And, and as you mentioned earlier, that the press is only as free and as strong as, pe- as people who support it. So what, what do you think that that new life and that new support looks like. Yeah, and thank you for not mentioning the title of the last chapter, which is uh, <laughs> The First Amendment is Dead, A Love Story, which, by the way, I wanted to call the book, but my publisher <laughs> thought we should try to sell some books, and that was almost certain not to get us there. So, um, but but ultimately, I come back to this, that, that there are a lot of problems with the First Amendment. We can run through them pretty easily. Hate speech is a problem. Bullying online is a problem. <laughs> Revenge porn is a problem. I get all that speech has been weaponized, as Tim Wu at Columbia says. And that gives us concern. Uh, And you see the ability to push out lies that just seem to go unanswered. But every alternative I've ever thought about seems to be worse, where the solution is worse than the problem, because I think it involves having the government make decisions that people should make. At the end of the day, what I'm really interested in is seeing an American public that listens, listens (laughs) to things they disagree with, read things they disagree with, and make discerning judgment. That's a long way away from where we are now. And it's hard. It's hard because there's so much information out there. But to me, that's the only real check, is that people are going to make wise decisions about policies because they've made wise decisions about the information they've chosen. Somebody wrote to me, and the email started out with the ominous words, why did you write this book? And I assume that's an email that's going someplace where as a sensitive author with thin skin, I don't want to know. But it wasn't. She was right. She, she said, why did you write this book? Because you should be writing for young adults. And that's really, <laughs> it's really an important point. We need to start much earlier in helping children understand how to read and how to discern and how to evaluate sources. Yeah, and there's 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 some great work that's happening uh, in that area. I know Pointer and and the the Knight Foundation and others are are trying to to figure out how to solve some of those problems. Right, and that's it's it's really important. You know, the the analogy I use is that the internet is is to information what the Las Vegas buffet is to eating. You walk in, and there's just incredible choices. Some of them are really bad for you but they sure taste good for a while. And we just need to have people who say, I'm not going to hang around the dessert table of cable news and and, and make my entire diet that. Right. Uh, So, David, we're going to to close, as we always do, with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. Uh, So thinking about politics, what's happening today, what makes you angry? I think that the single thing that makes me the angriest is the resistance to having fair elections. 
that is, starts with redistricting, but it also involves voter suppression. I would have thought the one thing we as a country could agree on is that we should have fair elections. Yeah. Two topics we've talked about on the show before and, and we'll continue to. Uh, what makes you proud? I am really proud of the amount of volunteer work that gets done in this country that gets overlooked. Um, I'm just struck by how giving people are. And it's the one place where they put politics aside. Uh, you know, when I grew up in Illinois and I go back there uh, I see it. I see it in the streets in New York, and I can tell you, people don't agree on much, but they certainly agree on. You know, we should be helping each other. Okay. And then, what makes you worry? I, I am worried about the ability of um, people to use power in ways that go unchecked. Um, I <laughs> spent my entire life, uh, starting from when I was a kid, learning politics, government, civics, and believing in checks and balances. I'm worried that we've we've lost that. And then finally, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope is the uh, students who I have in my in my law school classes. They are very high achieving young men and women at Harvard Law School and NYU Law School. And what I see there is is real seriousness of purpose that isn't about making money, although some of them are going to make a whole lot of money, but they, they do care about the country. They do care about their communities, and I think that's worth tapping into. Great. Short and sweet. We'll leave it there. <laughs> um, David McCraw, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.